Just uh, good morning. <laughs> Just uh, one word of clarification. I am in a doctor of ministry program, but it is not specializing in preaching. It's a general program because I need help in all areas. Okay. <laughs> Um, I have been excited. I'm in my third class in this course of study, and each one excites me. This particular class that I'm in now is postmodernism in apologetic preaching. And I feel that even though I'm a member of our culture, I live in America, there is much that I don't understand about our culture, and so I'm thankful for this opportunity to grow. Deborah and I have also been invited to be a part of a Bible study called the Truth Project at um, the home of the assistant principal at Push Ridge Christian Academy, and we've enjoyed spending time with other couples that we didn't know and more training and instruction on our culture, the whole concept of Postmodernism. To that end, I'd like you to turn with me uh, in the scripture to Matthew chapter 13. One theme uh, that is prevalent in scripture is the theme of sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting. Uh, I had no idea how many references there were uh, to, the, to that theme in Scripture. So I had a very difficult time selecting a passage to preach from. I finally told uh, Cinda on Friday, well, just put down the sermon title and leave the passage off. <laughs> and so I've decided to go with a very familiar passage, what's known as the parable of the sower. What we're going to do is read, uh, starting with verse 1 in Matthew chapter 13 up to verse 9, which is the statement of the parable. Then we're going to skip over to verse 18 where Jesus explains the parable. So please follow along as I read. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now over in verse 18, Hear then... The parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
And as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the Word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, I continue to marvel at the depth and breadth of Your Word. We thank You for the gift of Your Spirit who has entered our lives, opened our minds and hearts that we might receive and understand. We pray that we might be good soil, that Your Word would be planted, nourished, and bear much fruit. Lord, we hope we hope that we might be of those that produce a hundredfold, sixty, or thirtyfold for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1939, a slender young correspondent for the London Times named Kim Philby was recruited to join the elite British intelligence agency, MI6. The Second World War was about to begin and Phil was assigned to the Sabotage and Propaganda Department. He excelled at his work and soon he was promoted to counter-espionage in foreign countries. By the end of the war, the British began to realize that the Soviet Union would pose the greatest post-war threat to British national security and Philby was named to head the new department of Soviet counterintelligence. By 1949, he advanced yet again to become the British Director of Intelligence in Washington, D.C. Less than 10 years into his remarkable career, he was living in our nation's capital and serving as liaison between MI6 and the CIA. He was a brilliant operative, a master of the game with access to the deepest secrets of, the two, of two of the world's greatest superpowers. Philby was even being considered for the highest position in British intelligence, the chief of MI6. There was just one problem. Philby was a communist spy. In intelligence lingo, a mole is an agent who is inserted into the political, military, or intelligence structure of a target nation with the specific objective of rising to a key position of influence and trust. At this point, he is switched on. He begins to betray high-level secrets to his home country, a country that he may not have seen for many years. At the time, Philby was an operative. No fewer than five Soviet moles had infiltrated the highest level of British intelligence. Doesn't that give you a warm, fuzzy feeling? For a mole to be effective, requires three characteristics. First, he must be a thorough part of the country he plans to infiltrate. Second, he must spend years rising to a level of influence. And third, he must remember where his real 
allegiance lies. Now, why in the world am I talking about all this? What does this have to do with sowing and the theme of sowing in Scripture? Well, I'd like you to compare this incident with Kim Philby to a, a recent incident in the United States on 9-11 where several Muslim moles planted in our culture over years grew to understand how to fly a jet plane into two of the most important buildings in our country, and they were brought to the ground. And in case you think uh, all of this spy stuff is just something you might see in a movie like Mission Impossible 3 or something, uh, just this last week it was announced in Britain by the head of their intelligence network that they feel that the threat of terrorism is greater than ever before that there are many moles in their culture that are waiting and biding time and growing in influence till the moment that they can strike. Again, why in the world am I talking about this? Because I think there are a number of parallels between the theme of sowing, planting, reaping, and harvesting in a mole in another country you and I are in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. I don't know if you realize it or not, but it's true. There's this um, theme called uh, pluralism and tolerance that's just been sweeping our country now for years. I learned just in the last two weeks that there are several kinds of tolerance. What I thought was tolerance, what I guess was originally uh, meant by the word tolerance, was that if you held a p an opinion that was different from mine, that that was okay and that I would be willing to indulge you the right to your opinion. And I would respect the fact that you have a different opinion, but I could still have my opinion. It was, it was fine that you had yours and I have mine. I thought that's what tolerance was. Well, that's called negative tolerance. Positive tolerance is not only do you accept the fact that I have a different opinion from you, but that my opinion is equally valid. It's just as right as yours, even though they're seemingly contradictory. That's called positive tolerance, and that's where our cultures come to so that when Christians say, that they believe in the one true living God and that the only way that you can come to know Him is through Jesus Christ His Son, well, that's being mighty bigoted of you to say that. That is intolerant of my feeling that I can come to God through Buddha or Muslim or whoever, whoever else. Mohammed, excuse me. So we live in, a, in an increasingly hostile culture. I realized after I told Cinda the name of my message that I wanted to make a slight change. And so you see that the title is Sowing the Gospel in the, what, the American Culture or something in our culture. It should be Sowing the Gospel in a Hostile Culture. Because that 
my friends, is what the United States is going to increasingly become to Christians. And you and I may not see it as much as our children and grandchildren, but our culture is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. Our culture is rapidly changing. I'd like you to consider some of the major cultural trends in America today. This, First of all, this thought of tolerance and pluralism. Uh, secondly, that Christians are uh, feeling that our country has been taken away from us, that it originally started with our founding fathers as a somewhat Christian country, but now it's being taken away from us and we need to take it back. That sets up culture wars and a feeling often of antagonism, an us-them kind of culture. Christians then begin to retreat into their little enclaves and we say, well, the world's gotten so bad that I can't spend time in the world. I suppose I've got to work there and earn money, but I'll spend as little contact with the world as I can. That continues to remove us from our culture. So we have less and less impact. Christians are more capable today from all of the scholarly research that's been done in many fields we are more able today to confront our world than ever before. We have more and more to say and fewer and fewer who will listen to us because we continue to retreat from our culture. We are in the end times, we say. There's nothing more we can do. Let's uh, spend time in fellowship with one another and pray for our world. But we want less and less to spend time in our world. So, what are the choices that we have in dealing with our culture? We can confront them, and it turns out often to be somewhat angry, somewhat antagonistic. And we have the answers, and we need you to listen. Problem is, is we're answering questions that were given 30 years ago. And we're well prepared to answer those questions. Well, what's our world saying today? So there's a great need for us to switch philosophies. You know, we talk about having paradigm shifts. To adopt a new framework. And that framework is sowing and planting the gospel as opposed to harvesting. So in a harvest, there it is, right there. And we see Jesus with the woman at, at the well uh, talking about the fields white unto harvest. And that used to be America 30 to 40 years ago. Not today. And if we're going to have an impact on America, we need to be sowing the seeds of the Gospel in every area of our lives. I'd like to sum up the points that this one book that I read made uh, Tim Downs in a book called, um, let's see, what's the name? Finding Common Ground. Tim's been a career campus crusader and realized that much of what he did while he was in college and later on staff was wrong. <laughs> um, 
And I, I really respect him for saying that, but he's got some great answers in response. But he sums up these trends with four points. Christians are retreating from the culture, taking an adversarial attitude. The non-Christian culture is becoming more hostile in return. The culture from a Christian perspective is eroding rapidly. And finally, if Christians don't begin to sow, we've seen our last harvest. I'd like to uh, look with you at this passage in Matthew 13 very briefly. My proposition is, if the sower has good seed and trusts God to bring the increase, those two givens, if the sower has good seed and trusts God to bring the harvest, then the most important aspect of sowing becomes soil analysis and preparation. That's our job. If we believe that we have the good seed, and I believe that we do, it's called in verse 19 of Matthew 13, the word of the kingdom. Yet one of many titles for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith. If we have this good seed, if we embrace that, and these days, it's questionable among even what are called evangelical born-again Christians. Our culture has so seeped into our church that much of the evangelical church today has questionable beliefs in this good seed. I remember one of the members of our group in this Sunday school class or Bible study that Deborah and I attend on Sunday nights is a Christian counselor. And he said he has noticed over the last 15 years how people that come to him as born-again believers understand less and less of what the Bible says. And so they say, well, as a Christian, I understand that I should do this and that. And he has to change what he says. Because it used to be that he could agree with them. Now he says, well, my understanding of the Bible is because so much of even evangelicalism has strayed from the truth. But if we do have the good seed, that's one given. We must also believe that it's God that brings the increase. It's God that brings the harvest. And that's why in the Old Testament we have these festivals, the festival of ingathering, the festival of the harvest, uh, one at the beginning of the harvest, one at the end. It was all to acknowledge that it was God that had brought the harvest in the first place. And it was thanking Him for the harvest that He brought. And we know from that um, frequently cited example in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So if we truly have the Word of the Kingdom 
And we believe that it's God who brings the increase. He's the one that brings the harvest. Then what's our responsibility? What's left for us to do? It's soil analysis and preparation of the soil. That's our responsibility. Now, it may seem from this parable that Christ has shared that the soils are the way they are and so the seed is thrown and if it lands on good soil, good. It'll produce good fruit. So that there's nothing really for us to do except be with God tossing the seed. And whether it lands on good soil or rocky soil or shallow soil or the beaten path, oh well. We did our part. We tossed the seed. No, what the Scripture says through this theme of sowing and planting throughout Scripture is that we're involved in analyzing and preparing the soil. That's a big part of our job. We're to dig in and understand what what's this soil good for? And if we start to dig in and we hit solid rock, we say, oh, we must be in Tucson! It's caliche! What's that good for? Cover it with gravel and put cactus and saltillo and all these things in there. You know, forget it. Give up. No, if we want to have grass, which I did in, in times past, it required so much work. I had to borrow this huge tiller and dig down through the caliche. And then I had to put fertilizer through it and manure and plant the seed and cover it with straw and have our little Jack Russell Terrier go out and chase away the, the quail and the dove at every opportunity because they, the, they were eating up the seeds. It was a lot of work. And finally, after weeks and weeks of watering and praying and watching it like a mother hen, it started to come up. And then the dogs would go out and they'd pee on one spot. And that spot would die. And there was another spot that was under the shade and it wouldn't grow as fast. And we'd have friends over and they'd trample it all down. So I tell you what, we, we built a house up in Catalina and moved in about six months ago and there's not a blade of grass anywhere. Because that soil requires so much work. Well, God's calling us to do the hard work of soil analysis and preparation. I remember as a child growing up, both my parents had grown up in a very small town and had planted gardens, large gardens. They had a fair amount of property, both of them. And so when they got married and they had us kids, they wanted to have a representative garden wherever we lived. We had to have a garden. I don't know why. It's not like we looked forward to the vegetables. I think we gave a lot of them away. That just reminded them of growing up, I guess. And so we, we had to have a vegetable garden. But who worked in the garden? It was us kids! And we were out there, you know, hoeing away and getting the weeds out and watering and fertilizing and taking care of the bugs. And it's what I hope to illustrate by these examples is what the Bible shares with us over and over again, and that is that sowing and planting is hard work. 
we're not just tossing out the seed and wherever it happens to land, oh well, and we pray. Lord, I pray that this is good soil and that Jim or Mary or John or Susie are good soil and the seed will take root and grow. No, our responsibility is to help prepare that soil. So if we recognize that they have a faulty worldview, if we recognize that they're struggling with personal problems and we could be of some comfort or help to them, if we recognize that there's something going on that's beating them down, they don't understand, that we help them understand, I think the first step is befriending people in the world around us, even though that can be very difficult. Sometimes we're repulsed by what we see. We may have um, family coming for Thanksgiving. And uh, they, this one, well, it's my niece actually, um, has gotten hooked up with, in my opinion, the wrong crowd. And she looks more and more dark and bizarre uh, as the years go on. And I'm very concerned about her. And my tendency would be to run. I don't want to be around her. I'm, I'm even frightened by what she represents. But I've been praying over the last few days. Uh, they still haven't decided completely if they're coming or not. But I've been praying that if they do come, that I could love them and that I could share the Gospel with them by befriending them, by loving them in Jesus' name. Planting seeds. So, if, if the seed is good and we realize that God must bring the increase, then the soil must be analyzed. And what that means is we've got to know our culture. I encourage you to be about reading books and being involved in things that would help you to know your culture. And maybe that means maybe that means that you throw wine and cheese parties. Maybe that means you host a movie night at your house and you talk about it afterwards with your some of your neighbors. You say, well, that sure doesn't sound like the Gospel. That doesn't sound like we're using the Word of God. No, we're planting and sowing, folks. We've got a long way to go to earn the trust of our culture that they'll let us back in. Because what we have done is retreated from our culture. When we were building our house up in Catalina, every time I went to see it, I passed by this boy's prison up there. Any of you who have gone up to Catalina have passed it. It's called Catalina Mountain School and it's just south of Catalina on the east side of the road. Every time I'd go up to see the house, I'd pass by that boy's prison. And it was like God was sitting next to me in the car uh, pulling me on the shirt. Will, there's, did you notice there's a boy's prison over here on the east side of the road? Yes. <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> Have you ever thought about going to minister there? What would I do? These boys are so different from me. There I am. 
good Christian, retreating from my culture. What do I know about gangs? What do I know about those cultures? That frightens me. But I kept, God kept tucking on my shirt. And so I went through the process of applying to be a volunteer there. And I've been volunteering now for a couple of months. And at first, it wasn't working out so well. There was a church that volunteered on Wednesday nights, and they sang for half an hour, and then they preached for half an hour, and I was just kind of in the audience. And so I met with the uh, chaplain, and I said, I'd really like to spend time with the boys one-on-one or in a small group. So the next week, he took me to one of their cottages. They have six cottages with about 20 boys in each cottage. And he took me to the one that had the worst boys. And so he said, Let's, let me just take you around and introduce you, Will. And so uh, we came in, and I was absolutely shocked. Their cells, their rooms that they live in, are bare and naked metal. They've got um, a, a little toilet in the room um, and they've got a two bunk beds with very thin mattresses. There are no doors or drawers inside the room at all, except for the very heavy two-inch metal door to the room itself with a small window in it. And so he was taking me around from room to room looking through these windows, and the boys are looking out. And I'll tell you, I was shocked. They didn't look like terrible... Uh, <laughs> what would be the word? I, I, I expected to see these rough, tough kids covered with tattoos that would spit at me. They look like kids. They're 13 to 17 years old. I've had four of those. They, they look like kids. These were the worst... People, this, these boys' prisons are reserved for the worst unless they get up to about 16 and if they've murdered, then they're charged as adults and they go to a different place. But these are the worst of the worst kids in this prison. And so we're trying to talk through the door and the doors are so thick, I can't even hear them. So we go from the little window over to the crack in the door where the door meets the jam. And we talk through that crack. And so uh, the chaplain says to the case manager, would it be all right if one of the boys came out and we could meet with him in a separate side room? Well, sure, chaplain, that would be fine. Now, that's what I'm talking about. So we went into the case manager's office. We spent about 20, 25 minutes with one boy. And then he went back and the case manager got another boy and brought him and we talked for him for 20, 25 minutes. I told the chaplain on the way out, that's what I'm talking about. So the next week, I spent an entire hour with one boy. Did I have my Bible out saying, thus saith the Lord? No! I'm trying to plant seeds. I'm trying to sow. I'm trying to win them. I'm trying to be a friend to them. I'm trying to understand their world, their culture, and see then where that leads. I think the change that God 
is talking about in a planting sowing environment means that we're going to be taking a long view of slow, gradual process. Over and over in the Scripture, it talks about, even in this chapter, there's a parable called the parable of the weeds, where um, over time, weeds grow up with the wheat. And at first, it's hard to know. And then they realize what's happened. And the, the workers come to their master, something's wrong. There's weeds growing with the wheat. Did you plant those? He said, no. An enemy's done that. Well, should we rip out the weeds then? No, you can't do that or you'll uproot the wheat with the weeds. So let them stay. So as we're working in our culture, at work, in our neighborhood, in our schools, it's a long, gradual process of living the life before the world that they can see the difference that Jesus is making in our lives. How do you live in the culture without becoming a part of it? We need support. This too is a paradigm shift because what has happened in the past is we've seen a young man rising up in the congregation who seems promising and we say, you ought to go to Bible college. You ought to go to seminary. And we rip them out of their world, send them off to be trained, they come back years later, and then we try to reinsert them into the world and make a difference. Go forth and do good. Well, they were doing good in the world to begin with. That's what you recognized in them. You saw God at work. So why rip them out? So there may be people that have a calling that's just as valid as the pastoral ministry, but God's called them to work their way up through IBM or Raytheon. Now, how do those people do that? I'll tell you, a pastor needs lots of support. He needs lots of education and training. And he needs lots of encouragement. He needs lots of prayer. He needs lots of support. But don't people in the world need that too? Don't missionaries who are moles in our hostile culture need support as they try and infiltrate our hostile culture? The irony of it all. We're coming back into our own culture trying to reclaim it for Christ. We need support to do that. Would it be interesting to have some kind of classes in the church setting or in someone's home where we're gathering together those who are in middle management that are seeking to make a difference for Christ? How do we do that in our hostile culture? How do moms do it today? How do school teachers do it today in our culture? Oh, don't go into public school. You can't go into public school. It's too far gone. And so some retreat. And everybody is called to do what God's called them to do. So I don't want to be judgmental. But I don't think God wants us to completely retreat from our culture into Christian communes and enclaves in different places. He wants us to sow and to plant and to reap a harvest. To do that, we need support. I'd like to give you some practical applications. 
I think we need to revalue the role of the sower. I think we need to reconsider what the sower does and how they should work in our culture. Secondly, I think we should talk within our church about how to sow. What does that mean? What does that look like? We ought to train our youth in the philosophy and basic skills of sowing. What does that look like? How do you sow in our culture? Okay, so I see some of the women smiling. Yes, they train their daughters how to sew with needle and thread. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sowing the gospel in a culture increasingly hostile to Christians. What does that look like? We need to encourage training and education for advanced areas of sewing. See, we already do this for missionaries that are going to Muslim countries. Do missionaries to Muslim countries tell you where they're going? No. Why? They're moles in a hostile culture trying to seek opportunities to live the life of Christ in front of those who are hostile to Christianity. So they're not planning a church with a spire and a steeple. They're trying to plant seeds of the Gospel in the Muslim culture. See, we're already doing this in some areas of church work. I think what we need to do for the future is to apply that same philosophy right here in America. We need to fifthly create support structures for our sowers. Again, we do plenty of that for people going off into the ministry. We've got We've got, they come under care of presbytery. They receive scholarships. They have prayer, people in the home churches praying for them, maybe supporting them financially. But what about people sowing right here in Tucson? And I think here's the, the big paradigm shift. I'm not sure if it's true among PCA churches as much as others, but I think we need to prepare for the long haul. We may be in the last days, and we may not be. And our responsibility is to sow the Gospel. We have no idea how long it will be before Christ comes back. But what should He find us doing? Are our children going to benefit from the sowing that we've done in our lives? Or will they find it even tougher? Will the culture be even more hostile to Christianity when they reach adulthood? What are we leaving for our children? And finally, number seven, be willing to accept unmeasurable results. Unmeasurable results. This is completely contrary to our culture that has metrics everywhere. Yeah, I work at uh, University Medical Center. We've got metrics to study everything. How many people are washing their hands before they go into a patient's room? We're almost to 100%. But I'll tell you, we track that. We have people that watch our staff before they go into a patient room to make sure that they've washed their hands so that we're not spreading infection, so that our patients don't leave the hospital with more than they came with. 
So we have metrics to track everything. And that has seeped right into the church. And our church planners and our in our denomination today have to show results. We need to show results. And pastors of no matter how long they've been doing it, there's this emphasis on results. And you know, you've heard about how we get together in Presbyterian meetings or in General Assembly and how's your church doing? And oh, we've had 20 new people come in the last quarter or whatever it is. What sowing is about is putting seeds in the ground and maybe not seeing anything. Surprise, shock, wonder. That's what seeds do. For weeks! Well, if we apply that to the world and and planting the gospel in people's lives, we may not see anything for months or years. And again, this is not new to missionaries who work in difficult cultures. Deborah and I were on a church planting team headed for Japan, and and at that time, which was 18 years ago, it it took the average Japanese seven years of contact with Christians before they made a profession of faith. Seven years! I don't know what it is today. And can you imagine what it must be like in Muslim countries? Those results are unmeasurable for long periods of time. It's similar to farming. And I think that's why God includes this imagery throughout Scripture. It used to be that our country was very much a farming culture. And so people would understand all the hard work in preparing the soil and then watering and weeding and waiting and waiting for the spring rains and the fall rains until finally the crops came. My grandfather and my uncle both worked on a dairy farm. We had not only 52 head of cattle, but they had 600 and 75 acres of land. Uh, some was in wheat and some was in grass for the cows and some was in uh, corn. It, it was a lot of hard work. And as a young boy, I would go and spend the summer with my grandparents and I found out how difficult farming is. And many people have left farming in our culture and it's left to those with lots of equipment and lots of money farming hundreds of square miles of land (laughs) instead of little teeny hundreds of acres. I believe that God is calling us to a new framework, a new way of looking at Christianity in our culture. And I believe it involves sowing and planting over doing the slow, gradual, hard work process over a long period of time. And we may not see lots of results. I'll say, well, what about the megachurches then? <laughs> I don't know. Because the second given is that God brings the increase. God brings the harvest. So, if God provides the good seed and the harvest, our responsibility is to analyze the soil and prepare it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that all of the chaff in this message You would blow away and the seeds that are truly from You, You would plant in our hearts and minds. That You would water them, cause them to grow. And again, that 
we might be able to produce fruit 30, 60, maybe even a hundredfold. We desire to be faithful farmers for You. And so we ask that You would be at work in our hearts and minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.